Welcome to TD Cowan Insights, a space that brings leading thinkers together to share insights and ideas shaping the world around us. Join us as we converse with the top minds who are influencing our global sectors. I'm Yaron Werber, biotech analyst at TD Cowan, and I'm super excited today to be joined by Daphne Zohar and Brad Lankar in this episode called The Entrepreneur's Corner to discuss entrepreneurship in biotech. Daphne Zohar is the founder and CEO of PureTech, a pioneer of the hub and spoke model for advancing new medicines. She also co-founded and hosts the Biotech Hangout, a weekly podcast that draws thousands of listeners each week and is a member of BIO's Emerging Companies and Health Section Boards and co-chairs the Strategy and Policy Committee. Brad Lankar is the founder of Biotech TV. Previously, he was the creator of two NASDAQ-listed biotech-focused exchange-traded funds. Brad previously worked at Franklin Templeton Investments, where he was a member of the management training program and was appointed to serve in a senior advisor role at the U.S. Department of the Treasury. Brad is also a co-founder and host of Biotech Hangout. Daphne and Brad, always great to see you, and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having us. Thank you. So we have a, a lot to talk about. Um, I'm really excited about this specific episode because this is really the entrepreneur's corner and you're both great entrepreneurs doing sort of different and innovative, cool things in biotech. And it's been great to be a guest on your on your biotech hangout. So thanks so much for, for having us on. Daphne, let's start with you. You and I met literally years and years and years ago when we were both sort of babies. And you've done a lot since then. Can you tell us a little bit about your journey starting PureTech? What drove you to start the company? You don't have a biotech background historically. And what's the biggest learning so far from, from the experience? I founded PureTech with the mission of advancing new medicines uh, with an unbiased, disease-centric approach, working with the leading experts in the field to advance uh, the most promising science. And really, the the thinking behind that was a lot of new companies get formed by an entrepreneur who has a specific technology that they're driving forward. Um, and what we wanted to do is sort of turn it on its head. So look at the best science in a field with a specific disease focus. And, uh, you know, we've been successful. We've been we've now co-invented and advanced 27 new therapeutics through both our wholly owned pipeline and our founded entities, including two that have been approved by the FDA and a third, CAR-XT, which just filed uh, for FDA approval. Uh, in terms of the learnings from the experience, um, one thing I've learned is that something that might seem very straightforward to me, for example, our model and strategy, can appear complex to others who aren't familiar with it. So, you know, even though we have a lot of very smart people in the industry, there's a huge reliance on pattern recognition and we didn't neatly fit a pattern. And I think that might change as there are a few more companies with similar models to ours, like Bridge Bio and Royvan. So the advantages of the model will be more broadly understood. And as you think about, even in hindsight, the way you went about, um, just in talking about developing the strategy, hiring, um, articulating the pipeline and direction, what, what was sort of harder than you thought? And what was maybe a little easier than you thought ultimately? Sure. Um, I think it was challenging because our model was unique. So we didn't have the native shareholder base that a biotech company would have or a venture fund would have. So a biotech company has its investors, but venture funds have what's called LPs. 
our model was sort of was was basically a biotech at heart, but had similarities to venture creation. So our early shareholders ended up being people who really understood the business, like CEOs of biotech companies and VCs investing their own money. So very smart money, but on a small scale. Uh, we then got some strategics and then we listed in London because there was no companies quite like ours at the time listed on NASDAQ. So overcoming the challenges initially, which were you know, primarily funding related, basically led to the model where we partnered with investors to fund the programs, brought in non-dilutive funding, et cetera. And the key for me in the early days was that I was able to get the top people in the world, the top scientists and, and others, and that helped to attract uh, you know, sort of a critical mass. And if you had to do one thing over again, what would that be? Oh, um, that's an interesting question. I think that we learned a lot of really interesting things about this model, and the model itself could actually be beneficial more broadly in the industry. So I think that it would have been great and a lot more fun to start with, you know, a ton of money instead of starting with a $100,000 check. Um, that's what I would do differently, but I'm not sure you know that that would have been possible. But I'm happy to talk about some of the advantages of the model, and I actually think it's better to be cash constrained early on. So yeah, so t- talk about that. Many companies, at least during the boom, you know, three years ago, started with a lot of capital, scaled up very quickly, had very expensive labs, or prosecuted multiple products at the same time. And of course, you know, the tap dries out and then it's, they need to really downsize. So you did it the other way. What, what was the advantage of that? Well, I think, first of all, when you start with limited resources, you have to make choices. Um, and so, you know, that forces you to be really tough about what you advance and what you don't advance. Um, the advantages of, of this model, by the way, one of them is that you're less reliant on the capital markets. And let me explain how that is. So we created um, these medicines and we would put them into founded entities. And we still have the flexibility to do that, but we now have a wholly owned pipeline, which is quite advanced. So in putting them in founded entities, we have equity, we have royalties, milestone payments, et cetera. And we've now been able to generate over the last three years about $800 million um, from the sale of equity, royalties, and partnership revenues, such that we've been able to fully fund our wholly owned pipeline without raising money in the last six years. So that's one advantage um, of the model. Another advantage is the team is fully aligned with shareholders to kill programs early. So like if you think about a single asset company, if you have mixed data, you might tend to look back on it and find, you know, positives where, you know, where they're a little bit harder to find. If if you have choices about how you spend your time and money, uh, then you're more likely to be tough uh, on yourselves and be more sort of uh, true to the data. And I think the other advantage is capital efficiency. So you have one team and we're managing multiple programs and you can move those resources so you don't have to build, you know, empires. You you build one company and you're moving resources based on what's needed. I also think there's some disadvantages to the model if you're if you're interested to hear what those are. But I, I'm very, you know, I think there's a lot of advantages though. Yeah. I'll come back to, to that in a minute because that's going to be very important. Brad, you've had a very interesting career trajectory, you know, started in the financial industry um, and you've been doing a lot of very innovative things. Um, can you tell us a little bit of your personal journey and what were the, the, the key inflection points that got you to, to, to come now and start Biotech TV? Yeah, so I've always been both like a science nerd and a stock market nerd. <laughs> um, 
And um, I actually, in college, I started out pre-med, and in my college, pre-med was a weed-out major, and I have to admit, I I got weeded out, so I I moved to the business school, but I always, like, kept my love of science, and, like, my first job out of college was at a a mutual fund company. Like, fast forward, like, many years later, uh, there's been, there was a big transformation, there's and it's still ongoing, a big transformation in like the funds business where like people used to invest in mutual funds and now they invest in ETFs. And it's still kind of like a nascent industry that like small players can jump into and like make a splash. And so since I had like mutual fund experience, I wanted to give that a shot. So I created a investment firm and created two uh, biotech-focused ETFs, one focused on cancer and one focused on China. And they they traded on the NASDAQ. And I think they were very innovative because before those, um, like biotech funds were like very broad and generic um, and like hard for the like average person to understand and get behind. Um, And so I wanted to create like therapeutic or like thematic specific funds. So I did that. I managed that business for about seven years and, um, you know, it had some like good points and, and, you know, I'm really proud of it, but it never really hit like an inflection point. And so like over the last couple of years, that business was just kind of treading water and I'm the type of person that's, you know, like go big or go home. I don't want to like manage a business that's mediocre. And to be honest with you, my investment firm was, and I've always been a big social media person and it's kind of weird because like in real life, I'm a total introvert, but for some reason, like on Twitter um, and in business, I'm an extrovert. And when Twitter started to allow videos like four or five years ago, I would just do them for fun when I was at a conference, whether that was like in San Francisco during our big biotech conference or like at a medical conference like ASCO, like I'd grab an analyst friend or a CEO friend and do a video. And um, back then, Twitter only allowed two minutes and 20 seconds. And it's really hard to do anything compelling in two minutes. And, you know, I would do these videos and people would just love them. I mean, some of them would get tens of thousands of views and, you know, great feedback and everything. And as an entrepreneur, I said to myself, you know, there's an unmet need here. You know, nobody else that I'm aware of in like the biotech ecosystem was really doing videos like that. And, you know, based on the reaction, you know, it's clear that there was something there. And so in the back of my mind, I always had an inkling that, you know, this could be a business. And so fast forward to this year, you know, my investment firm was just kind of treading water, not doing great things. And I said to myself, this is not providing any value to the world. And when I do these videos just for fun, it's providing a ton of value to people. Um, You know, they learn from them and appreciate them and like the numbers reflect that. So I took the plunge and on June 1st, I turned what was kind of a hobby, you know, interviewing my friends in the industry into a real business. So it's called Biotech TV and it's like biotechtv.com and you know, we push out clips to basically every social media site, Twitter, LinkedIn, you know, Instagram, you name it. So right now I'm like a one man show. Um, you know, I'm planning to scale it, but kind of testing it out, you know, with anything on the internet, you never know like what type of content's going to work and what type of content's not going to work. So right now I'm testing all of that and figuring all of that out on my own. And then, you know, maybe we'll scale it one day soon.
it's it's hard to believe that you're an introvert because you know you and I met through all your work and then we struck a conversation we're both following sort of the we had so much overlap you and I sort of uh, virtually and it became sort of real when when you're thinking about biotech TV what's the vision so three years from now what is biotech TV going to look like and what which audiences are you trying to reach yeah so if I could wave a magic wand the awesome thing about our business as you both know is that it's mostly in like a handful of cities you know Boston San Francisco San Diego and New York And so what I'd like to have is like a correspondent, so to speak, in all of those cities um, doing what I'm doing now, like interviewing people. And I think there's really two key things um, to why I think it's like, you know, creating value to the world. The first thing is like traditional TV can't really cover the biotech industry to like, you know, go on TV today because it's like a general audience and you can't go too deep into like the technical aspect of science, you have to be like Pfizer CEO or Moderna CEO to like, you know, get on TV these days. And there's like hundreds of other biotech companies that have interesting stories and interesting news who, you know, aren't really participating in that. And that's a shame for our whole industry. And so I'm trying to be like the financial news networks for the other 99% of companies. And then the other thing about video is, it just like personalizes the news. You know, you get to learn like the people behind it and to hear in their own, like one really important thing I try to do every day is not to inject myself and my opinions into what I'm broadcasting. Like the idea is to allow the experts in their own words to explain their news um, and then let viewers decide you know, how, how they feel about it. You know, that's like a really powerful way of delivering the news, I think, because like I have a lot of respect for all of the many news organizations in our industry. But like if you're reading something, you know, a lot of times you're reading a reporter's interpretation of that news. And especially in an industry that's as highly technical as ours, you know, things can get lost in, in the, you know, in the process. And so I think just putting a microphone in front of the newsmakers, you know, face and allowing them to explain things in their own words can be like a very efficient and powerful way of, of educating people on, you know, what's going on in the biotech sector. And the very last thing is I don't just cover news. Like um, one thing I've been doing lately that's been really popular and a lot of fun is just doing tours of biotech companies, like behind the scenes and it's really fascinating because most people out there, even people who follow our industry closely, don't know like what a biotech company looks like. And it's so cool to see like the equipment and to hear the scientists talk and like, you know, all of that. And so I just want to like shine a light on our sector and show like all the cool things, you know, the companies and researchers and, you know, everybody's doing. And, and so like I'm having a lot of fun with it. Yeah. I'm I'm a an, an ardent consumer of the video, so keep keep them going. You know, I, I was in Boston on Friday, and toured a couple of uh, really really innovative private companies that have really scaled up, and these labs are impressive. And I think uh, you went to, uh, I think you and I literally visited the same company within two or three days. And it's very impressive the level of automation that's going on these days. It's not the labs that I did research in, you know, 25 years ago, even more than that. Totally. It's very educational. I, you know, I 
consider myself an expert in this industry, though I have a lot to learn like everyone else, but just the amount of things I've learned just by touring those facilities over the last handful of months, um, I feel like twice as smart as I was like three months ago. It's amazing. And so I hope the viewers are, you know, feel the same way. Daphne, back to you. So you mentioned um, all the benefits of the business model and what, what are some of the challenges? Right. So I think one of the, some of the disadvantages of the model vis-a-vis uh, -vis single asset plays. So single asset plays have been traditionally more loved by investors, by specialist investors in particular, because there's a more clear understanding of the M&A uh, story. And a lot of specialists also like to view themselves as being the ones to pick the programs that are going to be successful. So I think having uh, a more diverse pipeline it means that you'd have to find, you know, enough uh, a specialist that, that has expertise across multiple therapeutic areas. I would caveat that by saying that um, we're in three therapeutic areas, for example, CNS Oncology and Pulmonary, and there are seven big pharma companies that have all three and are focused on all three, and there's a dozen more that have two of the three. And I think ultimately data and alignment are what drive M&A, not, you know, the fact that you're a single asset or not. I think for us, the biggest advantage is that we're almost like a victim of our own success and that we haven't raised money. Um, so I, I used that as an example earlier. We haven't had to raise money in six years, but we haven't raised money even when we listed our ADRs on NASDAQ. Um, so we haven't offered up a transaction or allocated stock or anything like that. So the stock is very illiquid and uh, we have a pretty uh, sort of concentrated shareholder base. Yeah, which which is a you know catch twenty two. Can can we talk a little bit about you, you sent out a a, 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 a and I don't know I'm going to call it a tweet about your role um, as a CEO and how you know how busy it is to be a CEO, and you're obviously a woman CEO, and we're, we're increasingly seeing women in leadership positions in biotech, and even on the investment side. You know, we just hosted uh, T D Cowan's uh, annual therapeutics conference. I remember sitting with another well-known sort of mutual fund investor and we're it was a woman and we were like looking around and at some point we looked at each other and we're like wow it's like 35 40 percent are women that was like unheard of you know 10 years ago it was like 10 maybe 15 percent but you know when you started there weren't a lot of women was it lonely did you were you able to find mentors maybe talk a little bit about that journey yeah and and the, so the post that i made was just that you know as a CEO, you're really busy um, and you're focused mostly on your work. And, you know, when I have some extracurricular activities that are really unusual. So most people go and they like are posting pictures from exotic locations. I'm doing biotech hangout and the bio board. And what I said was that it's fun. That's my social interaction outside of family because I get to interact with peers and we talk about the industry and think about ways to improve it and best practices and all of that. So, so that was what I posted. In terms of women, when I first got started, I was the only woman in the room. You know, so I was the only woman in board meeting. I was the only woman in, at a lot of networking events. You know, I think that I was lucky in that I met some great uh, mentors who happened to be men early on, including Bob Langer, uh, Ben Shapiro, Chris Viebacher, John LaMatina, Bob Horvitz, and Raju Kuchalapati. And these are like, you know, world-class scientists, CEOs, uh, you know, R&D heads. I think that people at the top of their career sometimes are more open-minded to taking a chance if they can sort of see a person or um, an idea and say, I'm willing to bet on this um, because they don't have anything to prove to anyone else. So I was very lucky to meet people like that early in my career. 
But I think the environment has improved vastly, as you pointed out. So I, now I have, for example, um, Kiran Mazumdar Shah, who is a CEO that I've respected for many years, and she's on my board. And we have 100 biotech CEO sisters. I actually think that it might even be like close to 150 at this point who support each other. I'm on the board of bio, as I mentioned, and, and that organization has become incredibly more diverse. But, you know, I, I think you still put a focus on people who are good. And it's just that you're seeing those people more because you're more open to looking for them. Uh, and because there are more women are on boards, they're getting elevated within their organization. So it's I think it's beneficial for the industry in general. And Brad, maybe back to you. As you're thinking about, as you noted, Biotech TV is about four and a half months old now. We're sitting, you know, sort of uh, early to mid, mid-October. What are the biggest challenges at this point? Uh, is it figuring out what content you want to deliver? Or is it also figuring out what's the business model that's going to be behind it? Definitely the the biggest challenge is the business model and scaling it. So I'm I'm where Daphne was years ago with like that $100,000 check, but mine's more like $1,000. <laughs> um, um, you know, I'm literally living like day to day, you know, trying to make it work. And it's actually going very well. Like I started out with one sponsor and now I have three. Um, so it's, you know, it's been nice to see that sponsors see the value in it. And the cool thing about video is you can get very creative about how you deliver value to sponsors in ways that you can't like in, you know, like a, a one or two dimensional print world. So there is a lot about that that I, I still need to figure out. The content I think I'm starting to get a handle on because that's that's that was really my goal over the last, you know, the first like handful of months um, that I've been doing this is just to try out different things. Um, and so I think I'm starting to understand like what works and what doesn't. Um, but for sure, the key is is scaling it. Um, like I said, I want right now I'm a one man show and I'm trying to create like a large media company that involves not just having like correspondence in different cities, but of course having, you know, s- schedulers and editors and, you know, people who have way more expertise in video production uh, than I do. And so all of that takes money. And I agree exa- 100% with what Daphne said earlier, like I could raise money and hire a bunch of people and everything, but I think that would be a mistake. Um, especially if anything internet related, because again, you never know like what's going to work and what doesn't. And so my plan right now, which could change is to just, you know, grow it organically and, uh, you know, so we'll we'll see how that goes. And as you think about delivering value for sponsors, how how do you do that? It, a lot of it's viewership, and obviously their prominence within within the content. Um, how else do you customize it? Well, like anything else, if you succeed and you have a lot of viewers, what you become is like a distribution channel. So, like for example, right now, the what I deliver to sponsors is three things. Um, number one, like their logo is on our website. So like every video you watch, no matter what page you're on our website, you see the sponsor's logos. On social media, every clip we sent out has something that says, you know, brought to you by and like those sponsors, you know, being visible. And then the third thing that I think is really special about video is we also do sponsored content. So like you know, I'll go to like one of their facilities and like one of my sponsors, for example, is a real estate company that provides, 
you know, lab space and offices and things to biotech companies. And the cool thing about it is I can go to one of their buildings, you know, here in Cambridge and film how awesome it is. And like, that's so much more dynamic and like so much more valuable than like reading about it. So that's one of the the cool things about videos. But like, you know, if, if I grow enough viewers over time and I become a big enough distribution channel, in addition to having like long-term sponsors, you know, I can run essentially commercials like a TV, you know, ch- channel does. Like I always say, sometimes companies will spend like tens of thousands of dollars on like a corporate video and they'll put it on their investor relations website. And the only people seeing it are the people that naturally go to their investor relations website. They're trying to reach, you know, the whole world. I can become like a distribution network, you know, to get you in front of like hopefully the whole world one day. So it's going to take time to build that audience and to make that distribution network, you know, as valuable as as I, I hope it will be one day. But like, I think that, you know, that can be a big foundation of the value that this delivers to people over time. You're both, um, you know, the co-founder, so to speak, in that initial biotech hangout. How did you come up with this idea, and um, what, what was the what was the purpose? So uh, Brad and Chris Garabedian, I think, did the first um, show, and it was at the beginning of COVID. It was right around J.P. Morgan, and I heard it, uh, and I just joined. Actually, what was really cool about it is you can see who's in the audience, and so I joined, and then they brought me up a few times, and then you know I just started joining on a regular basis, and I think. Um, you know, I'd love to hear from Brad since he was the first one who founded it. And then maybe I'll say a little bit about what I, you know, what I get out of it and why I do it. Yeah. I wish there was like a sophisticated answer to this, but the truth is this was when we were all locked in our houses during COVID. And, um, it was initially on clubhouse, the clubhouse app. And that was like the first time that this, like most people knew of this format. So it was actually Chris Garabedian who found Clubhouse and, you know, really got into it and said, hey, like, let's have a conversation. And the first one we did was after JPM one year is like a JPM wrap up. So just it was another thing that turned in from like a informal thing into over time a formal thing. But first of all, I want to say um, so Chris and I kind of got sidetracked in our business and personal lives and, and you know, couldn't really give it the full-time effort that it deserved. And I want to really say how much I admire like what Daphne has done with it. I mean, she took a good thing and turned it into a great thing. And I think one of the cool things about it, and this is something that I'm focused on with biotech TV too, is it gives you an insider's view of our industry. In the past, I feel like if you're reading about, you know, the news or whatever, a lot of times you're reading an outsider's perspective. And so with the Hangouts, you're again, you're hearing from newsmakers like straight out of their mouths or you're hearing from, you know, Biotech TV is to give people like a very authentic insider's view um, of our industry. I don't think that really existed in the way that, you know, Daphne is doing that through Clubhouse or through, you know, uh, Twitter Spaces now. And um, what I'm doing through video, you know, before. Yeah, I I think it's it's super cool because it really, to your point, it sort of involves Main Street, 
you know, biotech to operators, to Wall Street, to, you know, board members. And so it, it, it sort of crystallizes it. And to me, it, it really, you sort of forces me to kind of look more broadly than what's going on day to day in what we cover and kind of think about how all the pieces are moving together because you're very topical. And you see the way you cover it, you see the entire industry transforming sort of on a weekly basis. Um, and you kind of think about it over three months and you realize, wow, things really have kind of shifted and you begin to see kind of trends. And I think that's really cool too. Yeah. And, and one of the things that's surprised me is, you know, we just get on a call. There's a little bit of, you know, in advance, as you know, you're on because you've joined us a few times. We hone a topic list, but we do, it's completely unscripted. Uh, and we just get on there at the beginning of the hour. We record it. We stop at the end of the hour. There's no editing. Uh, there's no script. And, you know, what I think is surprising is we get 3,000 plus listeners every week just on Twitter spaces. And then it goes on podcasts and Spotify. And I know like Tim Oppler saw me, he, people come up to him all the time. So a lot of people actually listen to it. And we've done really no promotion of it or anything. So to me, it says that we're filling a niche that is needed. And I agree with what Brad said about biotech TV. Um, so, you know, one of the things that I really like about it also is, you know, not everything goes well for all companies all the time. But the idea that when something doesn't go well, you're not just like saying bad things about the management. You're actually having a conversation about like, you know, what could they have done differently? Was this anticipated? How could they have communicated it better? Maybe even getting that management team on. And also when there's big successes, like we had Jan Sparka when he sold Trillium uh, with that perfectly timed deal. Um, and we've had a number of CEOs like post their like big exits, you know, uh, Jeb Kuyper um, when they did the big Nimbus deal and, and you know, just many, many more. So I think that's also pretty interesting is the, the idea that it's more complex. It's not just this like, oh, you failed, you're bad, but or you succeeded, you're awesome. But there's things that you can learn from both sides of that. Yeah. And it, it, I always say it's, uh, you know, between being good and being lucky, I take being lucky all day long and a little luck uh, goes a long way as well, which is not, not always easy to script either. Let me um, ask maybe... Brad, when, when you're thinking about your transition from being an investor to a communicator, how, how you're a natural communicator, obviously, but um, how is that transition sort of, what's been easy and what's been harder? I don't know that I would say this, that this is hard, but like one thing that's really important to me that I've strived to do that like maybe not everyone will see is um, I want to make sure that people know that I'm totally unbiased. Um, I actually sold all, like, I don't own any biotech stocks right now. Like, I've made a real effort to show that this is 100% independent and, you know, all, all of that. Because people think of me as, like, Brad the investor because that's what I've been doing for, you know, the last dozen years. And so I want to make sure that, like, if I'm interviewing a company, they don't think I'm, like, promoting it or, you know, anything like that. Um, so I think that that's something that I need to be cognizant of is like people who know me understand that. But if somebody's, you know, coming, looking at this for the first time or something, they might not realize that. And so I think it's really important for me to have like an independent view. And the other thing too is, you know, a key to like um, this type of thing is asking tough questions because 
that's what makes it compelling. You know, that's what people want to see. And I always try to be like respectful and not to like be like a gotcha, you know, type person. Um, but like asking tough questions is, is a really important component of this because if everything you do is just like, you know, very like, I don't know what the right word is, but like if, if you're not asking tough questions, it's not compelling content. And so I make an effort to make this educational and, and asking the tough questions is, is a way that you do that. Right. Um, so this is my favorite part of each podcast, a little something personal and a little bit of a touch of humor. Um, definitely, let me maybe go to you first. What's your dream job if you could not be a biotech CEO? Yeah. So that the problem is I don't, I was bracking my brain for something like humorous to say here, but I think what my answer is going to be pretty boring. And that is that um, I often think about the fact that just by accident of birth and good fortune, we live in a way that's pretty enviable. And in addition to that, we get to do our main job is to do something that's a good thing, you know, and can have a, an impact on the world. So, you know, imagine being a gun manufacturer or like just developing a product like that doesn't add any value to the world. So if I could do anything, if I had more time or at some point, like in 10, 15 years from now, I think what I'd like to do is focus more on how to help people as like the primary thing. So, for example, particularly children um, who are suffering. And so outside of donations, that's something I'd like to do at some point in the future. Yeah, that's uh, it's, it's, a, it's a noble cause. I think I... Um... I can relate to that. And I think somebody else was another woman actually in this uh, episode who was, uh, I think it was Nina actually said something along the same lines. Brad, what about you? I've always wanted to work in sports. <laughs> um, like I've kind of gotten into like Lionel Messi uh, now that he's here in the U.S. and like with Inner Miami. And I just thinking like how much fun it'd be to be a part of an organization like that and like working in like the front office of like a team or something. So I think I'd like to, to work in, in sports one day. Um, when, when you make it in sports, can you give me tickets? The last time I saw a Barcelona game was admittedly like 10 years ago. It was the El Clasico and uh, I'm a huge Barca fan and they actually lost that Clasico. And then it was at the end of the season and they lost the season. So I still need to see him, uh, in person again, winning next time. Maybe uh, Daphne, to you, as you think about what's your biggest strength and what which area you're still mostly working on, whatever capacity it is. Yeah, I think my biggest strength is that I will see a strong path forward or a solution when there are many options and there's ambiguity and others might you know want to analyze the situation. I think I'm able to see that and help others to see it and get them to agree. Uh, to to trust me enough to follow that path. So I think that's um, really good. I'm also, I think, good at getting really smart, amazing people to want to work with me, which um, is good because if you can, the minute you're micromanaging somebody, that means either you or the other person needs to go. Um, when you work with amazing people, you can empower them and they can you know do great things. So those are some of my strengths. I think my biggest weakness is uh, an impatience um, with just an impatience in general with things that take longer than I'd like, and in particularly with bureaucracy and process. Chris V. Bacher used to call, um, there's like this group of people that will say no to things, whoever it is that comes up with problems, and he used to call them the no, brig no brigade. So like my, I have a lot of impatience with, with that element of what we do. 
that's probably a big weakness on my part. Brad, what about you? I think I have two biggest strengths. I think one of them, and this comes into like entrepreneurship, is I have a big independent streak. So like, for example, when I created my investment firm and created ETFs, like, you know, I bootstrapped everything and worked very hard. I could have worked for a large company and had a comfortable salary. And I would rather be like living my own life and making my own decisions. Like nobody told me to do biotech TV. I just decided to do it one day. And like every single day I make all of my own decisions. And I think the other thing is, you know, hard work. You know, I'm like in my 40s right now and I'm like pulling all-nighters because I'm like a one-man show and I'm not just doing the videos, I'm doing everything. The scheduling, the editing, like traveling. I literally just got off a red-eye plane from a conference in Las Vegas and, you know, I'm doing this podcast now and in 30 minutes I'm getting on the subway over to, to Cambridge to, you know, film a video and it's all just like by my own volition. So I'm like, nobody's telling me what to do. I'm just like making it happen. And I think that's how you have to be as an entrepreneur. And I'd say like my biggest weakness for sure is like sales. Again, I think that goes back to like me being an introvert. I just don't have like this, the salesperson personality. And I actually like looking back on it, think that, you know, it was one of the things that uh, was, was a headwind for my investment firm because a lot of you know, a lot of that is sales. And like, I always say, like, people don't buy your fund, you sell it, you know, like, funds are not bought, they're sold. And I was never really a great salesperson. And so that's definitely my weakness. Uh, Terrific. I don't know. I think um, you are doing pretty well in such a short period of time. And you've got huge exposure. Yeah, I'm a huge fan. And I know it's getting a lot of traction. So congrats. Well, Daphne and Brad, great to see you. Thank you so much for joining us. And uh, I'm your biggest fan. We'll continue to follow closely. Thanks for joining us. Stay tuned for the next episode of TD Cowan Insights.